This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 85th episode of the program. Today is March 10th, and before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Elizabeth Luna River, Tawson Ojiktu, Thomas, Craig Rizlin, Eric Luster, George Sorez, Valerie Dole, and I also want to send a huge shout out to Daniel Holmes, who actually painted this picture of me that looks amazing. Like, I can't even believe it. So you can check out more of his art by visiting the links in the description box, or you can follow his art page at Vixen Paintings on Instagram. So thank you so much. Great work. So if you guys would like to support the independent progressive media revolution, you could visit the links down below. Uh, and if you want to just support us for free, all you got to do is like our videos, share our videos, and spread the word, and you can help us grow. But if you actually want to become a member or a Patreon patron or donate to us via PayPal, you can see those links on humanistreport.com. So on today's episode, first, I'll talk about Trump Care, and I have a special message for Representative Jason Chaffetz. I'll also discuss WikiLeaks Vault 7 revelation, the dangerous impact Russian hysteria is having on Trump, and how the DNC's Unity Commission is another slap in the face to progressives. Additionally, it wouldn't be a Humanist Report episode if I don't talk about Bernie Sanders, so I will talk about his criticism of the Democrats, attacks waged on him by the Washington Post, and his plan to end corporate tax dodging once and for all. We'll also touch on corporate Democrats like Hillary Clinton, Cory Booker, and Joe Manchin. And finally, I will discuss how batshit crazy the Republican Party is and talk about how Donald Trump is ramping up the drone war already. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy. So when President Trump was first elected, he vowed to replace the Affordable Care Act with a plan that would guarantee health insurance to every single American. So now he recently announced that his replacement to Obamacare is out for review. And holy crap, it's shittier than any of us could have imagined. And I'm not just being hyperbolic because it's so bad that even other Republicans are shitting on it. So what exactly is in this bill and why is it so bad? So the bill states clearly that no federal dollars are to be appropriated for abortion. However, that's already illegal. Federal funds cannot go towards abortion. So this is not just redundant. But, you know, it's a little bit more malicious because since organizations like Planned Parenthood provide abortion, well, they'll also receive no federal dollars for other procedures as well. So basically, this will defund Planned Parenthood. Now, never mind the fact that abortions only account for about 3% of Planned Parenthood's total services, and women also use their services for cancer screenings and family planning, but because this would make the GOP feel better, they're deciding that they also want this bill to provide a clause that would defund Planned Parenthood. Now, additionally, with respect to abortion, the measure forbids spending federal tax subsidies on health plans that include coverage of abortion. Even if the customer doesn't get an abortion, this would dramatically shrink working Americans' access to insurance-covered abortions or would lead to insurers dropping abortion coverage from their plans or both. Customers could buy separate policies to cover abortions but couldn't use the federal subsidy to help pay for them. Now, they are also repealing the individual mandate. Now, the logic behind the individual mandate is pretty complex because what Obama was trying to do with the individual mandate is by 
penalizing people who chose not to buy insurance if they were healthy. He wanted to keep the cost of healthcare down for everyone. So in the end, it sounds great. It sounds like a win at first. No more tax penalties and you don't have to have health insurance. But at the end of the day, this will ultimately lead to a huge increase in prices. Now, the federal government will no longer mandate that insurance companies cover certain things that are really important, like hospitalization, maternity care, and mental health services, along with other benefits. So for states like Texas and Mississippi, who just generally screw over their citizens, they no longer have to mandate that insurance companies must provide hospitalization, for example, which seems like a pretty uh, <laughs> non-negotiable part if you're buying healthcare, if you ask me. I mean, I think that if you are paying for health insurance, shouldn't it not even be a question that hospitalization is covered? Shouldn't mental health services be offered as well? Because I think that your brain, like all other parts of your body, needs medical care. But they're saying, you know what? If you're in a Republican state where they like to screw you over, uh, we're not going to mandate that. It's up to your state. So petition your local government to do something about it. The federal government will not get involved to protect our citizens. I think that's that's pretty unreasonable if you ask me. Now, also, the federal subsidy will no longer be based on income. It will be based on age. So if you're younger and you need health care and you can't afford it, well, you're basically shit out of luck with this new health care plan. And if you're in a larger family, well, no more than five family members would be eligible to receive the health care subsidy. So this would be devastating to members of the middle class. It would basically raise health care premiums for larger families and for younger middle class workers. Now, this bill, also includes a tax cut for the rich. <laughs> Not making this up. So if you make more than $200,000 per year, which is about 1% of the population, well then, in sum, that proportion of the population will receive over $346 billion in tax cuts over 10 years. So he is raising the cost of insurance for the middle class while giving the rich a huge tax break. This is just a brazenly idiotic strategy. It's not going to bode well for you electorally, and you're going to piss off a lot of voters that supported you in 2016, Trump. Now, the worst part is that the Medicaid expansion will be killed as of 2020, so they will move towards a block-granted system, which will result ultimately in less federal funding. So this means that citizens will get less help from the federal government and they're going to have to rely on their state governments. Now, as we all know, if you are if you live in Louisiana, in Mississippi, where your state government does not want to expand Medicaid, where they offer less help to the poor and unfortunate, well, then you are shit out of luck. So ultimately, without Medicaid, people will die. Now, on a good note, they are keeping the clause in the Affordable Care Act that mandates that insurance providers are not allowed to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. And also, if you're 26, you can still stay on your parents plan but everything else about this bill is horrible so to summarize their plan repealing the individual mandate will almost certainly lead to a sharp increase in insurance premiums as shitty as that clause is now the federal government also is not going to help you out as much especially if you're young or if you're a woman and millions of poor people will lose their health insurance. So the bottom line is that lots and lots of poor people will lose their health insurance, and if you're fortunate enough to keep your health insurance plan, well then, the price will go up for you. That's what this plan would do, and the Affordable Care Act is already broken. The way that you fix it easily is you just create a public option, so that way you have a government-run plan that's optional, uh, and then these insurance companies who like to rip off customers will be forced to compete with the government. Now, that's just a band-aid on top of a bigger problem. What you really need is a single-payer system, but at a minimum, a single-payer, or excuse me, a public option would be a quick fix, but they don't want to do it because they want to rely exclusively 
on these health insurance providers that rip people off. And this is because health insurance CEOs are in Donald Trump's ear. He's literally bragging about this. He posted on Twitter that he met with CEOs of health insurance companies. Well, let me ask you this, Trump. Have you held any meetings with the poor lately? Have you held meetings with someone who went bankrupt because they had health insurance, but it didn't cover their medical condition? See, this is the problem. This is why we say that the system is rigged. It's because the rich, the CEOs who game the system, they're in the ear of the politicians because they donate to the politicians. But the poor people who just don't donate enough to politicians, I mean, that $10 donation isn't going to buy you access. Well, those people get screwed time and again. And it's just, it's so frustrating. Now, thankfully, there is a huge chance that this bill will never see the light of day because, as I mentioned, even Republicans are lambasting this bill. So it also has a huge amount of opposition from dominant organizations. So the AARP and American Medical Association announced their opposition to the bill and that they will be trying to kill the bill. Now, additionally, conservative interest groups like the Club for Growth don't think it's free market enough, whatever that means, and even some Tea Party and Coke-backed groups oppose this bill. Now, there's also Republican senators who have come out against it, like Senator Mike Lee, Rob Portman, Lisa Murkowski, Cory Gardner, and Shelley Moore Capito. Their opposition to this bill is primarily contingent on them ending the Medicaid expansion because they know that there will be hell to pay, and their constituents, if they thought they were pissed off now, where they're going to be really pissed off if they do try to kill the Medicaid expansion. It's just bad policy because if you do things that just brazenly screw over your constituents, there will be backlash. And some of these Republicans are at least smart enough to realize, yeah, I'm not dumb enough to screw over my own constituents who rely on this Medicaid expansion, who rely on Medicaid to pay their medical bills, to get insurance. So it, it doesn't make sense as to why they would do something that's so brazenly idiotic. Yet, GOP insiders are defying their own party, like Paul Ryan, to brag about how amazing this bill is. Look at what this does. For, look at This is a conservative wish list. Look at what this bill does. It repeals Obamacare's taxes. That's a trillion dollars in tax relief for families that will help them with the cost of health care. It repeals Obamacare's spending, Medicaid expansion, and the Obamacare subsidies. Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion. It repeals Obamacare's spending, Medicaid expansion, and the Obamacare subsidies. So that, to me, is just shameless. Paul Ryan is shameless. You have the Speaker of the House of Representatives bragging about gutting Medicaid, repealing the Medicaid expansion, so that way his constituents, the poorest of the poor, the most disadvantaged people in the country, will not be able to get health insurance. What kind of a country brags about that? What kind of a country elects representatives that in turn screw them over and make it so that way they do not receive health care like Medicaid and they die. I mean, this is sickening. So this plan, I hope it never sees the light of day because this really is shittier than anyone could have imagined. It's a horrible policy uh, and I hope it's defeated and we have to do everything we can to defeat it because if you thought Obamacare was bad, Trump care is exponentially worse than Obamacare. The answer is a single-payer health care system. We need to move towards a Medicare for all system where we just pay into health care with our taxes and even if you can't afford health care well we're all subsidizing this system through our tax dollars like canada like france like britain who has different variants of a, a medicare for all system or universal national health system we need that but if we're not going to have that we need a public option we're just lowering the bar more and more and it's it's unacceptable really
So the GOP recently revealed their replacement to the Affordable Care Act, and ultimately what this shitty new bill would do is lead to less people being insured, and those lucky enough to remain insured would face rising health care premiums each month. So this is a horrible plan, and even some Republicans have come out against it. Now, knowing that this plan would ultimately lead to an increase in the price of health care premiums, well, Representative Jason Chaffetz had some solutions for us peasants as to how we can deal with these new costs. Americans have choices and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. What the hell did you just say? So that was by far one of the dumbest yet simultaneously condescending things I think I've ever heard a politician say. I find this absurd particularly for two reasons. So first of all, he's comparing the price of health care to an iPhone. Those are not the same price. An iPhone costs $200 if you renew your contract, uh, and if you buy one out of contract, it's like 800 bucks. Healthcare costs thousands of dollars every single year, and that price is going up for most people. So to compare those two things, that makes no sense. That is a false equivalency, and you're really dim-witted for suggesting that we have a problem paying for health insurance. I have no problem paying more in taxes if you're going to have a better health care system. If we have a Medicare for all system, I have no problem paying $100, $200, $300 more per month in taxes because I know that all Americans, the homeless, the poor will be covered. But what I do have a problem with is getting ripped off by health insurance companies who only care about their profits and not providing health care to us. That's what the issue is about. Now, the second reason why I find this really absurd is because what he's really implying here is how dare us peasants do anything to make ourselves happy. I mean, if you're a peasant, if you're complaining about the cost of healthcare, well, shut the fuck up unless you're willing to sell your car, sell your house, sell your TV, sell your Xbox, then how dare you complain about the rising cost of healthcare? Don't you know that you're supposed to be miserable and uh, live as frugally as possible because these Republicans don't want to do anything about the cost of healthcare being so high? That's what he's saying effectively, and it's so frustrating to me. I find it so condescending for someone in this position, someone of power, to talk down on us peasants as though we're too dumb to do our own budgets. No, what we're saying, Jason, is that we're not going to be ripped off anymore. We want you to do something like Canada does for their citizens when they get ripped off. We want you to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry so that way you could bring down the cost of prescription drugs. We don't want the cost of our ins insurance premiums to go up every single year. And furthermore, since we're paying more, maybe... We just want better coverage because we're paying each month and not everything is covered. In your new healthcare bill, you literally remove the federal mandate that health insurance companies have to cover hospitalization. Some of the basic things are now being stripped away from our already shitty healthcare plans and you're talking down to us about it. You are really dumb, for real. Now, after receiving a ton of backlash for obvious reasons because this comment is just outrageous, he is now trying to walk back this comment, but it's too late. He's already been exposed as a gigantic hypocrite. So first of all, it's easy for him to tell us not to worry about healthcare because his healthcare is paid for by the federal government. And even if that wasn't the case, he has 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in his bank account. So he would be able to afford whatever healthcare plan you could imagine. Now, second of all, the underlying implication here is that people need to take responsibility for themselves. But if that's the case, then Jason needs to take his own advice because according to FEC filings, not only are his donors paying for his campaign's Verizon bills to the tune of four to five hundred bucks each month, but either him or one of his staffers spent more than seven hundred dollars at an Apple store in Salt Lake City using donor funds. And do you want to guess what he purchased? A brand new iPhone success and of course a case because you've got to have a case with it. So <laughs> this guy <laughs> he's done this numerous times now. Donors have paid for his phone bill. Uh, they've paid for $11,000 in an Apple store prior to this in previous years according to FEC filings and now he's saying uh, you need to take responsibility for yourself pay for your bills, uh, and, you know, be responsible, be more frugal, don't buy that new iPhone if you can't afford it, when he is allowing his donors to pay for it. So this rich asshole has free health insurance provided to him by the federal government, who he lambasts all the time, and he also has his iPhone and its bills bought and paid for by his campaign donors, and yet he has the audacity to say this. Rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. So I have a message for this rich elitist prick. Don't you ever talk down to poor people ever again, because the poor people who you like to judge and look down upon, well, they're going to work every single day, working harder than you, working more hours than you, busting their asses to fund your salary. Their tax dollars are going in your wallet, and you have the gall to look down upon them and judge them. Don't you dare wag your finger at them. So go fuck yourself, Jason. You are a rich snob, and you deserve every bit of criticism you are receiving for making this idiotic comment. So this week, we had a bombshell from WikiLeaks. So they released more than 7,800 pages of documents detailing the vast cyber espionage tools at the disposal of the CIA. Now, we don't know everything that we need to know about this as of yet, and this is uh, the first of many more leaks to come. But what we already found out is chilling, and I'm not being hyperbolic. This is this is really troubling. Now, the documents are dated between 2013 and 2016, and there's a total of about 7,818 web pages and 943 attachments, according to The Guardian, and WikiLeaks describes this dump as the largest ever publication of confidential documents of the agency. Now, as of yet, we don't know where the leak came from, and the CIA has not yet commented on the authenticity of these documents, but former intelligence officials do believe that they are real. So all of these documents are referred to as Vault 7 and they reveal how the CIA has immense power when it comes to taking control of your devices. So The Guardian explains, a broad range of devices are targeted by the agency. A lot of attention is focused on breaking into general purpose computing devices, including PCs and smartphones with malware that affects iOS and Android phones, referred to in the text, as well as Windows and Linux computers. The tools described would allow the CIA to take almost complete remote control of a user's phone, turning it into a complete spying device reporting back to the agency. Now, The Intercept provides us with some more examples as to how this works. So, one borrowed attack, Shamoon, is a notorious computer virus capable of stealing data and then completely destroying hardware. 
Persistence, a tool found by the CIA, allows the agency control over the device whenever it boots up again. Another acquired attack, Swamp Monkey, allows CIA to get root privileges on undisclosed Android devices. Now, the reach of their capabilities is much broader than just smartphones and PCs. So according to The Intercept, a CIA program named Weeping Angel provided the agency's hackers with access to Samsung smart TVs, allowing a television's built-in voice control microphone to be remotely enabled while keeping the appearance that the TV itself was switched off, called fake off mode. Although the display would be switched off and LED indicator lights would be suppressed, the hardware inside the television would continue to operate unbeknownst to the owner. The method, co-developed with British intelligence, required implanting a given TV with malware. It's unclear if this attack could be executed remotely, but the documentation includes reference to in-person infection via a tainted USB drive. Once the malware was inside the TV, it could relay recorded audio data to a third party, presumably a server controlled by the CIA, through the included network connection. And they don't just stop at smart TVs. So the documents indicate that the CIA wants to be able to control all of our internet-connected devices, including cars. So WikiLeaks explains, as of October 2014, the CIA was also looking at infecting the vehicle control systems used by modern cars and trucks. The purpose of such controls is not specified, but it would permit the CIA to engage in nearly undetectable assassinations. Now, before we all put on our tinfoil hats, we don't have any evidence that the CIA has in fact done this yet. However, just the fact that they're seeking this capability should outrage every single American because this is a brazen violation of our privacy. And for those of you who doubt the authenticity of these leaks, well, why is it that the FBI and CIA is now working in tandem to investigate WikiLeaks? They're going after WikiLeaks by launching a federal investigation to figure out who is the person responsible for these leaks. So I don't think that they would care this much if these leaks were inauthentic. Now, furthermore, uh, the response from government has also been to go after the leakers themselves rather than actually addressing the privacy issue that this obviously brings to light. Now, what's interesting is that the conservatives who recently declared their love for WikiLeaks, all of a sudden they're doing a 180 and they don't really like WikiLeaks anymore. So, for example, on Fox News, they brought on this analyst to fearmonger and do pro-government propaganda and explain why this is really a problem, not because it reveals a potential intrusion into our privacy and reveals that the CIA can hack into our devices. It's a problem because of, you know, national security. When you got wind of these revelations from, from WikiLeaks, what's, what was your first reaction? Uh, a word that would be bleeped out if I said it right now, mm -hmm. and it was like, here we go again. I mean, it's just, what do we have to do to protect these secrets? Some people may disagree. They say, you shouldn't be tapping these phones. You shouldn't be doing this. But at the end of the day, these are our secrets that we use to protect us from attacks, to collect intelligence on foreign adversaries. Would anybody, would, how many people would like to know exactly what Kim Jong-un is going to do with his nuclear missiles? What if we disclosed the only tradecraft we had that allowed us to see what was going on? What good would be served by that? So look, there are a lot of implications for this, and none of them are good. So in the end here, what this Fox News analyst wants you to be concerned about is how this may jeopardize our national security efforts. Don't be concerned about the privacy implications. Be concerned about the national security 
that's that's the main go-to argument that they always pivot to, and it's not persuasive. It never will be persuasive. Now, Donald Trump's administration is maintaining the same exact stance. This alleged leak should concern every single American in terms of the impact it has on our national security. Now, this is kind of funny to me because before the election, Donald Trump said this about WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks. So the bottom line is that this has vast implications on our right to privacy. As American citizens, we are entitled to privacy, and I use that word very carefully, entitled, because it's guaranteed to us by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. The CIA does not have permission to do this. The fact that they have this capability and they're seeking out the capabilities to be able to control our devices is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Now, we don't know the extent to which they are spying on Americans. We don't know the extent to which they are hacking into our phones. But what I do know is that this does have a lot of privacy implications that should worry every single American. And this is only the tip of the iceberg because more leaks will come and we will ultimately know more. And what we already found out was very, very troubling. So I can only imagine what else we learned from these revelations. Unbelievable. So the DNC wants progressives to believe that it completely changed with the election of Tom Perez. You know, it's not continuity on the inside, change on the outside. They've changed. And one of the ways that they communicate that they're listening to progressives is they form this unity commission. Now, this is a commission within the DNC that's supposed to be a collaboration between the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton wings of the party where they come together and they discuss reforms that the Democratic Party should implement going forward. Now, the unity commission is supposed to be important because the Unity Reform Commission represents the party's chance to make serious changes before 2020 and avoid another Philadelphia. And that's assuming the Bernie delegates will be Democrats next time around. The commission may also be the last chance to secure the allegiance of the new generation of activists whose future loyalty to the party is no sure bet. So, I mean, this makes sense. I think that a Unity Commission is necessary because the party is, in fact, divided and trying to bury your head in the sand and pretend like it isn't isn't going to get you anywhere. So, you need both sides of the party to come together if the party's going to have a future, if progressives will be included in that future. The problem, however, is that this unity commission is a joke, and just like every other instance, they are screwing over progressives here. Now, to explain how this is the case, so the commission is comprised of 21 members in total. Now, the Huffington Post explains, here's how it breaks down. Clinton gets to pick nine delegates and a co-chair. Sanders seven and a co-chair and the dnc chair selects the final three members because the commission operates by majority vote perez controls what may amount to a swing block of three so is it just me or does anyone else see the problem here so <laughs> clinton gets 10 representatives sanders gets eight and perez gets three so you have a split between 13 representatives of the establishment and eight representatives of progressives so basically, any reform that comes up, they can easily vote it down, like that. And meanwhile, they're bragging about this so-called Unity Commission because a spokesman for Perez states, Tom believes that the Unity Commission must consist of a diverse mix of people that represents his inclusive vision for the party and that will help achieve the goals of the commission agreed to by supporters of both Senator Sanders and Secretary Clinton. So Tom Perez is saying that he wants to embrace voices from both sides, but he's not giving both sides an equal seat at the table. Now, I would even be skeptical if progressives did have an equal seat at the table because what we found out during the breakdown of votes for the first and second round of votes for the DNC chair 
we found out that 15 people actually switched their votes from Ellison to Perez between the first and second rounds. So I don't know what types of deals were cut, or what types of threats were made, or if there were threats, but for some reason, these people caved to the establishment, and they voted for Perez after they initially supported Ellison. So, I mean, I would be skeptical of this commission if progressives did have an equal seat at the table and had equal votes, but the fact that they don't, and that the DNC is somehow easily able to manipulate DNC voters who are more progressive... It's really problematic, but don't you worry, because this isn't the only way that they're trying to reform the party to appeal to progressives. So Tom Perez is trying to woo millennial voters, which are predominantly progressive, and big donors at the same time. So this includes efforts to have a more transparent budgeting process, root out waste, and spend money more effectively. But that's not all. They are planning to create meaningful educational videos on social media as, quote, an entry point for potential contributors. Because you know those millennials and how much they love their social media. How do you do, fellow kids? What? So now this is a direct response to what Tom Perez thinks is his response to the rigging of the election because whenever he was asked about whether or not he thought the election uh, or the primaries were rigged between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, he states, you know, it wasn't necessarily rigged so much as there was a lack of transparency that gave it the appearance that it was rigged. So what I think we need is just more transparency. So by trying to be more transparent, which I think is great, you know, we're all in favor of more transparency. He's thinking that he's ameliorating the concerns of progressives when in actuality, you're still not addressing those concerns. If you eliminate closed primaries, if you do away with superdelegates, if you have 25 debates in 2020 and tell us that you will commit to 25 debates right now, that would ameliorate some of our concerns, but you're just doing this to f because you think that it's going to appease us, but it's not. You're not really doing what we're asking of you. You're not really listening to us. What the Democratic Party leadership has continued to do is shoot down progressives, shoot down their ideas, but yet they want us to think that we're listening and they're patting us on the head. Meanwhile, they are not actually allowing us to have any real power in the Democratic Party. Hence why many of us are leaving the party. Hence why millions of people deregistered after the primaries and they are now independents, myself included, because the party doesn't want anything to do with these voters. And look, I keep saying this, but if you keep screwing over progressives, you're not going to have a base left to screw over because you will collapse and a brand new party will emerge to take your place. So, you know, this is really frustrating to me that they are continuing to sell us this load of bullshit, and I, I just hope that nobody in the progressive community is actually willing to buy it because it's it's fake, it's a ruse. Continuity on the inside, uh, change on the outside. That's what we're getting with Tom Perez and the DNC leadership. This is not an ordinary time and this is not an ordinary election. I want to send a message to every boy and girl and indeed to the entire world that America already is great, but we are great because we are good. What does that even mean? We are going to lift each other up. How? I want us to heal our country and bring it together. How? We have to start getting the economy to work for everyone. How? Not just those at the top making the best education system from preschool through college, making it affordable, because that's, I think, the best way for us to get the future that our children and our grandchildren deserve. How are you going to do all of this? My vision of America is an America where everyone has a place. This is the America that I know and love. If we set those goals and we go together, there's nothing that America can't do. 
So do you notice anything unique about that ad? It's nothing but platitudes. It's completely bereft of policy substance. Now, this right here is the problem that plagued Hillary Clinton's entire campaign. She had nothing specific to offer the American people. She talked about breaking down the barriers. She didn't specifically state how she would facilitate the breakdown of said barriers. So she really had nothing to offer the American people. And this is what progressives talked about time and again. Now, when we say this, the establishment yawns because political strategists, they tested these ads in focus groups. They know that this works. And also, the political consultants that the Democratic Party spent millions on during this election, they also say that this is a good idea too. They say you should run ads with nothing but platitudes and leave out the policy substance because it's not like an election is about policy, right? <laughs> well, look, here's the thing. A new study published recently vindicates all the progressives who were yelling about Hillary Clinton not focusing on policy and focusing too much on platitudes. Vox explains Hillary Clinton's campaign ran TV ads that had less to do with policy than any other presidential candidate in the past four presidential races, according to a new study published on Monday by the Wesleyan Media Project. Clinton's team spent a whopping $1 billion on the election in all, about twice what Donald Trump's campaign spent. Clinton spent $72 million on television ads in the final weeks alone, but only 25% of advertising supporting her campaign went after Trump on policy grounds. The researchers found, by comparison, every other presidential candidate going back to at least 2,000 devoted more than 40% of his or her advertising to policy-based attacks. None spent nearly as much time going after an opponent's personality as Clinton's ads did. I told you so, I told you so, I, I, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, I, I, I told you so, I told you. You so. so this is absolutely not surprising to me. And when you're running to be the president, obviously you need to prioritize policy above personality. But Hillary Clinton, her whole campaign was an anti-Trump campaign. She offered nothing to the American people. Now, when you break it down, Hillary Clinton, even though she claimed that Donald Trump was this terrible figure and that he just lashes out at people and attacks people, she actually attacked Donald Trump more than he attacked her. Now, the authors of this study actually conclude that evidence suggests that negativity in advertising can have a backlash effect on the sponsor and that personality-focused, trait-based negative messages, especially those that are uncivil, tend to be seen as less fair, less informative, and less important than more substantive policy-based messaging. So she ran an anti-Trump campaign because the political consultants who she paid millions to said that's what you gotta do. But unfortunately, Hillary Clinton, you offered us nothing in return, so you should have listened to the political science community as opposed to political consultants because we found out decades ago that if you run a negative campaign, that hurts you sometimes more than your opponent. So Hillary Clinton, she did something also that was... This was common sense. If you're going to run a presidential campaign, you need to have a vision. I don't know what Hillary Clinton's vision was. I don't know what I'm with her means. And quite frankly, I don't care if you think I'm with you. What I care about is you being with the American people. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm not running for office. I don't need to prove to you that I'm with you. But you are running for office and you have to prove that you're with me. Now, the question here is why the hell am I still talking about Hillary Clinton? Why am I harping on this bullshit that I've talked about a thousand times? Well, now that we have a study confirming and validating us... I think it's important that we learn the mistakes of our past. So I think that we have to talk about this because if we don't, then any other candidate in the future that goes up against a maniac is going to lose if they just focus on how that person is a maniac. I mean, all you have to do, if you want to win, just pick one issue. You don't even have to be progressive across the board. Just pick one issue, single-payer health care. Focus on that and drill it away. If you elect me, I will fight for single-payer health care. And the American people 
will be on your side. That is a message that will resonate with the American people. But you said, you know, I want to break down the barriers. I want everyone to have an equal opportunity. That's great. We all want that. But those are just platitudes. You're offering us no real concrete plan as to how you're going to facilitate this. And yes, people will counter by saying Hillary Clinton had these policy details on her website. But they shouldn't be kept away on your website. You should be talking about this. You should feature this in ads because that's what the American people will see. People are not going to take the time to go to your website and read through all of, all of these nuanced policy details. What they will listen to is your ads that they see when they're watching television. So the fact that you ran a negative campaign and it backfired, well, you should have been listening to us and not the political consultants. So we have to talk about this because... We've got to learn from our mistakes, or more, this isn't my mistake, we've got to learn from our mistakes as a country and as liberals, because, yes, we already know that Republicans are batshit insane, we know that that uh, Trump is crazy, but you have to do something to prove to us that you care about us. You can't just prove to us that that person is crazy. That's not the way that elections work, Hillary, and we warned you about this. I even wrote an article saying, if Trump wins, blame Clinton. And, uh, yes, we are now blaming you because you ran a terrible campaign bereft of strategy and vision. Joe Manchin is making a lot of enemies on the left because more so than any of his colleagues that are Democratic in the Senate, he's voting with Donald Trump and the Republicans to approve disastrous cabinet picks. So, for example, he voted in favor of approving Scott Pruitt to be the new EPA chief. This is someone who has sued the EPA, who is a climate change denier. And Joe Manchin voted to approve him. He also voted in favor of Jeff Sessions to become attorney general. Jeff Sessions is a longtime racist. So the fact that someone who is a Democrat voted in favor of this horrible individual proves that Joe Manchin is not really that liberal. So I don't know why he's in the party. Now, as a result of these votes, he's been confronted by constituents at town halls who want the person that they elected to actually represent them. But in spite of this, he's remained defiant. Now, we got another taste as to how he's remaining defiant on a conference call that he had with constituents where he was just brazenly disrespectful. So Politico explains that during a conference call, the sometimes contentious roughly 15-minute conversation was largely focused on the process of Manchin scheduling a town hall for his constituents, an idea he said he was open to while also repeatedly asking what the objective would be. But as the town hall conversation got chippy and activists on the call brought up points of disagreement with the senator, Manchin explained, what you ought to do is vote me out. Vote me out, I'm not changing. Find somebody else who could beat me and vote me out. Is that an invitation or a threat? I don't understand, responded one of the activists. Sure, it's an invitation. You ought to. I can tell that because we're on different pages. Are you a Bernie Sanders guy? Asked the senator. Uh, well, I don't quite see the relevance of that to this conversation, responded the voter. I'm just asking, Manchin said. I stand with the West Virginians who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary in all 55 counties where he won, the voter said. And then Manchin replied with Bernie Sanders is not even a Democrat. Now afterwards, Manchin's communications director stated, Senator Manchin is very happy to have you quote him saying Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. This is the amount of respect Joe Manchin has for his constituents. The people who elected him and gave him a job who pay for his salary with their tax dollars. This is how he talks to you guys. I'm not changing, vote me out. 
unbelievable. And during this call, he not only attacked Bernie Sanders, but he even attacked Barack Obama quite unfairly. So in one of the few areas where Barack Obama was actually progressive, he didn't like that. So at one point on the call, speaking to one activist, Manchin also says what Barack Obama did to our state is criminal, referring to environmental regulations after the voter brought up Manchin's vote for Scott Pruitt to become administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. They put 400 new regulations on top, and they just smothered us. It was ridiculous. Oh, is that so, Joe? So you think that what Obama did was criminal. Meanwhile, you are taking this position specifically because the oil and gas industry is your sixth largest donor, and you took more than $180,000 for them. So regulating them and getting them to not pollute the environment is criminal. But taking that money, taking a bribe, and then doing their bidding, that's not criminal. Legalized bribery is not criminal. Again, I, I don't know why you're a Democrat, you are more conservative than some Republicans. So it doesn't make sense to me why you remain in a party that clearly you don't identify with. And people talk about, well, West Virginia, it's a red state. So if you want to try to challenge uh, Joe Manchin and find someone that's more liberal, good luck with that. Well, uh, I don't care. We'll primary you. We will do what you ask. We will primary you. And if that doesn't work, then who cares if you lose to a Republican? Republicans are already targeting him because he's making himself an easy target because he's pissing off progressives and liberals. And Republicans know that they can capitalize on that and get him out and get a real Republican in. And look, nine times out of ten, when people see a Democrat who is Republican light, they're just going to go with the Republican. So Joe Manchin time and again has shown that he doesn't just not want to represent you if you live in West Virginia, but he actually holds contempt for you. He doesn't like that you're questioning him. He doesn't want to hold a town hall with you because he's afraid you're going to call him out on his bullshit. Well, Joe Manchin, you were elected. You are paid more than $180,000 a year to represent these people who you are lambasting on conference calls. Don't tell them, oh, you better primary me because I'm not changing. And if you can't beat me, then tough shit. No, you are supposed to represent these people. You represent the people of West Virginia. And you are basically spitting in their faces. Well, look, here's the thing. We will try to primary you. And if we're unsuccessful with that effort, then uh, if you lose to a Republican, then so be it. Because the change will be marginal at best between you and a Republican. So you know what? Joe Manchin, you made your bed. Lie in it. I really hope that you are kicked out of office because... You are you are one of the most disrespectful senators in the country to your constituents. It's unacceptable. You should really be ashamed of yourself, but this guy is shameless. He's shown time and again that he hates his own constituents, which I don't know why you would uh, run to be a senator if you dislike the people who you're supposed to be representing. But again, he cares about the oil and gas industry. He doesn't care about voters. He doesn't care about his constituents. So if that's the case, then give him his wish. Kick him out of office because he clearly is miserable there and hates his job. So about a month ago, corporate Democrat Cory Booker from New Jersey received a tremendous amount of backlash after he voted against an amendment proposed by Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar that would have lowered the prices of prescription drugs by allowing Americans to import our drugs from Canada. Now, he contends that his vote was contingent on the fact that Canada doesn't have the same rigorous regulatory standards as we have. So since he can't trust the quality of drugs from Canada, he's against this measure. 
Now, that's obviously bullshit because we all know that the reason why he voted against this bill was because he took $300,000 from the pharmaceutical industry. So, thankfully, it looks as though progressives have effectively shamed him into doing the right thing. So, the Huffington Post explains, back in mid-January, while Democrats were still recovering from the shock of the presidential election, 13 Democrats cast a dead-of-night vote that in previous years would have gone largely unnoticed. It was against an amendment from Senator Bernie Sanders that directed a Senate committee to write legislation allowing for the reimportation of cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. Perhaps the most prominent of the Baker's Dozen was Senator Cory Booker, who just the day before had given controversial and impassioned testimony against Attorney General nominee at a time a fellow senator from Alabama. The backlash caught Booker and his colleagues by surprise, and in many ways it presaged the furious energy that would soon be unleashed by progressives against both Trump and elected Democrats unwilling to stand up to him. It was a sign that things had changed in Washington and that standard operating democratic procedure would no longer be acceptable. The memo has been received. On Tuesday, Booker will join with Sanders at a press conference on Capitol Hill to announce his support for a drug reimportation bill. So, this is good news. You are now on the right side of the issue, Corey. But in doing this, he thinks he redeemed himself because we all know what he's going to do. So in 2020, when he inevitably makes his run for president, he's going to brag about this and say, you know what? I listened to my constituents when they told me they wanted me to vote a certain way. I did. And I teamed up with Bernie Sanders. So I'm a uniter. I am from the Hillary Clinton wing of the party, but I worked with Bernie Sanders to propose a bill that would make prescription drugs cheaper for all Americans. No, let me just stop you right now before you do that, because we all know that's what you're going to do. You don't get credit for being shamed into doing the right thing. It's a problem that you weren't on the right side of this issue, which I think is just common sense to begin with. The fact that we had to force you and twist your arm to get you to do something that goes against your donors shows that you're still corrupt. You've shown that you have the capacity to change your vote based on money. Money influences you. You've proven that. You are corrupt and you exude everything that we disliked about Hillary Clinton. There were numerous examples as to how Hillary Clinton changed her vote as a result of accepting money from the industry. So, for example, bankruptcy bill. Elizabeth Warren talks about this. Uh, She flipped her vote as soon as she began accepting money from the industry when they lobbied her for it. So I am done with these types of Democrats who want to betray their voters. And then once they finally get pressured into taking the right stance on the issue after we yell at them and twist their arms, then they brag about it. No. So before he brags, (laughs) before you even start this bullshit propaganda uh, campaign and brag about how you're progressive and how you work with Bernie Sanders, Just know we're not buying what you're selling and your chances in 2020 are still over. So I'm happy that you decided to come to the right side of the issue, but it shouldn't have taken all of this. We should be focusing on Republicans right now, but the fact that we have to focus on corrupt Democrats too, it's really frustrating because we have a right-wing extremist party in control of all branches of government. We shouldn't have to worry about you guys, but unfortunately we do. So just know this, Cory Booker, uh, I'm glad you finally did the right thing but you get no praise for that. And we are watching every single thing you do. And because we know you're going to run for president in 2020. He's going to be meeting with the Democratic Party. They're going to kind of have this talk over uh, the 2020 run with potential contenders. It's not going to happen. We will fight to stop you because I don't care that you took the right stance now. What would have shown to the American people that you care about them is if you took the right stance and we didn't have to pressure you to do it. So not only will we still try to primary you, but you're not going to run for president, buddy. And if you do, have fun facing resistance from progressives just like Hillary Clinton did. 
So I've previously done segments on how Bernie Sanders is the most relentless senator in the country when it comes to his willingness to call out Donald Trump and just hold him accountable. And that has not changed. So to give you some examples here, he's called out Trump for his blatant lies. So one tweet states, President Trump cannot continue to lie, lie, lie. It diminishes the office of the president and our standing in the world. Trump said three to five million people voted illegally and that his victory was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. Both lies. The United States will not be respected or taken seriously around the world if Donald Trump continues to shamelessly lie. So pretty much you get the gist as to how he's calling out Donald Trump on a consistent basis. Now, the problem is that the Washington Post literally wrote an article about Bernie Sanders calling out Donald Trump. And they have a problem with Bernie Sanders calling out his lies. So, journalist Amber Phillips states, Do me a quick favor, hit pause on your temptation to either cheer or jeer what Sanders said, and let this marinate. A prominent U.S. senator just described the President of the United States as a frequent and shameless liar, a claim that, for reasons I'll explain, is difficult to prove. Okay. What's more, what Sanders said about President Trump is one of a bazillion hefty criticisms that Democrats have lobbed and will lob at the president this week alone. So I want to stop right there. So what this journalist is saying is that it's difficult to prove that Donald Trump is a shameless liar. She's saying this irrespective of video footage online that you can find of Donald Trump just brazenly contradicting himself. It doesn't make any sense, but that's fine. Let's get back to the article and we'll revisit that claim later because it's complete bullshit. So she continues, This is the state of our political discourse right now. Political norms like don't accuse the president of the United States of lying without evidence or don't accuse the former president of the United States of wiretapping your phones without evidence without evidence, have been eviscerated. There are no rules right now in politics about what you can, can't, or should and shouldn't say. Here's the problem with using the L word in politics, though. To say someone's lying suggests that you know they don't believe what they're saying. It's possible Trump believes the allegations he's making, which seem to have surfaced on a conservative news site one of his top aides used to manage. All of that is why we in the media are careful not to call Trump a liar, but top Democrats like Sanders feel no such hesitation. In their mind, the president has become so unhinged that they have no choice but to accuse him of lying shamelessly. Corrosive effects on political discourse be damned. So her argument is that since Donald Trump might actually believe his own bullshit, well, we can't say that he's lying and we can't prove that he's lying because he doesn't think he's lying. This is one of the weakest arguments I think I've ever heard a journalist make. Okay, a lie is still a lie. And facts are facts. So if Donald Trump says something that is not factual, that's not grounded in reality, that's just completely idiotic, it's incumbent upon people in the media to set the record straight. And the fact that the tone of this article suggests that you prioritize, you know, political decorum and being proper over actually calling out his lies when he's misleading the American people shows that you are not a good journalist. Your priorities are not in order. Bernie Sanders is doing your job for you. As a member of the media, you are supposed to fact check Donald Trump. You're supposed to hold our elected officials accountable to hell with all these political norms that says we're supposed to be proper i don't care if donald trump is lying you have to call him out we're obligated to make sure that he does not mislead the american people but you're you're more concerned that this you know this is corrosive this is corrosive it's divisive you know uh the political norms are just more important 
Oh my, this is, this is ridiculous. You should really feel ashamed for publishing this article. The Washington Post should be completely embarrassed by this because this is a joke. Now, Bernie Sanders heard this dim-witted criticism and he had the perfect response. He states, what should a United States senator or any citizen do if the president is a liar? Does ignoring the reality benefit the American people? Do we make a bad situation worse by disrespecting the president of the United States? Or do we have an obligation to say that he's a liar to protect America's standing in the world and people's trust in our institutions how does one respond to a president who has complete disregard for reality and who makes assertions heard by billions of people around the world that have no basis in fact i find it interesting that miss phillips did not take issue with my facts her complaint appears to be that it is improper for a united states senator to state the obvious and that is that we have a president who either lies intentionally or even more frighteningly does not know the difference between lies and truth but how do we deal with a president who makes statements that reverberate around our country and the world that are not based on fact or evidence what is the appropriate way to respond to that? And if the media and political leaders fail to call lies what they are, are they guilty of misleading the public? Yeah, you're supposed to call a spade a spade. And again, I find this absurd that this is coming from a journalist. This is complete bullshit. So you're basically arguing for Donald Trump to be able to lie and deceive the American people and do propaganda and go unchecked. Bernie Sanders is not supposed to call Donald Trump a liar because of political norms. Yeah, well, I think that you will persuade zero people of that because the Republican Party, they, they've completely scrapped the idea of political norms and political decorum and Senate decorum. They have treated Obama like shit, and I disagree with Obama, but they were the most obstructionist that the Republican Party has been since ever. And yet you have the nerve to write about the liberal wing of the country being a corrosive influence on U.S. political discourse by calling out lies. No, the person who's lying is having a corrosive impact on political discourse because he's making Americans less informed than they already are. It's up to the media to inform us, but you're not doing that, so our leaders now have to do that. But, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm complaining because this is the Washington Post. I would expect nothing less from them because they have no legitimacy in my mind at this point. They have a couple of uh, journalists that do good work, but the fact that they would publish this is so embarrassing and it reflects poorly upon media in general. The Democratic Party has been wiped out at all levels of government, and this is because they decided to move away from the grassroots and rely almost exclusively on big money donors. I'm talking about the billionaires, the multinational corporations. Now, as a result, this has facilitated their shift to the right, and they left a huge portion of the electorate on the left abandoned. And this is why they're losing. They're being neglectful of their constituents and they're failing. So Bernie Sanders, thankfully, is someone who said this to them. He called them out in a reality check that I think they desperately needed to hear. Being in the minority here in the Senate, minority in the House, having a right-wing Republican president, the only way we're going to win this, and I think we can win this, is when millions of people stand up, especially in states that Trump carried, and say, excuse me, we did not elect you to be president to throw us off of health care. We did not elect you to be president to cut back on the child care that we desperately need. Sure. That's not why we elected Well, the implied in this is that there was a, f a bit of neglect from the Democratic Party. In a the bit past. of neglect? Yeah. No. Not a bit of neglect. An enormous amount of neglect. Uh, the truth is, and I think anyone who objectively assesses the situation has to appreciate that the model that the Democrats have followed for the last 10, 20 years has been an ultimate failure. I mean, that's just the objective evidence. 
we are taking on a right-wing extremist party whose agenda is opposed time after time, issue after issue, by the vast majority sure. of the American people. Yet we've lost the White House, the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, Most state two-thirds of the yeah. governor's chairs, and close to 900 legislative seats all over this country. How can anybody not conclude that the Democratic agenda and, and approach has been a failure? Uh, yep, he pretty much nailed it. Democrats are failures, and in spite of this fact, they know that they're unpopular, yet they are unwilling to embrace any progressive reforms. Why is that? It seems like common, common sense. Well, the reason is simple. It's because what they're doing is they are hoping to implement the same strategy now that they used during George Bush's administration. Their goal is to stay the same, but just wait it out. And when people get sick of Republicans, they'll come crawling back to the Democratic Party with open arms. So after the Clinton years, when George Bush took office, they were too hawkish. I mean, some of them voted for Bush's war in Iraq, and they were unable to regain power. But they didn't change because they knew they didn't have to because the American people would ultimately become so dissatisfied with Bush that they'd be welcoming back the Democratic Party with open arms. And we all did that. We elected Barack Obama in a landslide. And now, just two months into Donald Trump's presidency, they think they may not even have to wait another eight years. It might just be four years when we're so sick of Republicans that we elect even the shittiest Democrats that are marginally better than Republicans. So they know that all they have to do is continue being a little bit less shitty than Republicans, and one day they're going to get power back. But in doing this, they will perpetuate the same cycle where we get a shitty Democrat for eight years that we're disappointed in, then we get a crazy Republican, then we get another disappointing Democrat... And I'm tired of the pendulum swinging back and forth. It's time for them to embrace progressive change once and for all, because as that pendulum swings back and forth, the American people get more and more disenchanted with both parties, and we're all in a worse-off position because of this. So to break this cycle, all you have to do is listen to what your voters want. I mean, Republican, Democrat, uh, conservative, liberal, we all effectively want the same thing. You have to talk to people. And Bernie explains how this isn't that difficult. I think essentially, and why I really dislike this red state, blue state business, is that my ex personal uh, uh, record, and, and what I believe to be the case, is if you talk common sense to people, if you ask people, yeah. Uh, do you think your kids should be going to tuition-free public colleges and universities? You know what people will say overwhelmingly? Yeah, I do think so. Do you think we should give tax breaks to billionaires? And people say, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. And it's really just that simple. And we saw how powerful it is when politicians talk to constituents during a town hall that MSNBC had with Bernie, when he literally convinced the Trump supporter to support some of his ideas. I mean, he converted this individual in real time. So it doesn't make sense that they're not embracing this strategy unless you realize that the Democratic Party has no idea how to talk to voters, which I talked about in a couple of uh, episodes ago. I did a segment as to how they literally attended a retreat that trained them on how to talk to voters because they were so out of touch. They never left Washington uh, for so many years that, you know, they just had no idea. They were clueless on how to talk to average people. It's, it's so embarrassing, uh, but we want what everyone wants. We want opportunity, real opportunity, and we don't just want you to pay lip service to us and say, yes, I want to give you opportunity. I want to break down the barriers. I want you to tell me specifically what policies you will implement to give me the same opportunity as the rich. But they're not doing that. They have no message. They have no vision. Now, my question to Bernie Sanders is, after stating and knowing uh, you know, the obvious fact that the Democratic Party is a huge failure. Why do you continue 
to work with them, Bernie. I mean, work with them where you can on certain policies, but it's time for Bernie Sanders to lead a new party. Now, I look, I studied electoral engineering uh, in graduate school. I know that getting a third party started is nearly impossible. You can't have a new party actually be prominent unless one of the other two parties collapses. But you don't even need a party that's electorally viable. You just need enough people to migrate over to that new party and they would obviously follow Bernie Sanders. And if that happened, the Democratic Party would shit themselves and they'd realize that they have to come back to the left. But they have no left-wing check. The Green Party just isn't big enough, as much as I love them, uh, to really be an effective check on the Democratic Party. So they're just following the Republicans and moving more and more to the right and abandoning these left-wing voters. But if you form a new party, enough people will follow you, Bernie. We trust you. We believe in you. Start that new party, and even if it's the case that you get no people elected from that party, you're sending a message to the party that we have leverage and we will not support them no matter what. So, I mean, in the end... I think that this is a reality check that uh, they need to hear, but are they going to be receptive to that message? Uh, no, I don't think they will be because they've shown time and again that they not only don't care what we think, but they have contempt for progressives and they shoot us down at every possible chance. So, you know, Bernie Sanders can say that they're failures, but unless he really channels his energy into a new party, I don't think they're going to be inclined to listen to us because they're not threatened by us. They need something that scares them and a third party threat that's led by Bernie Sanders, I think would do the trick. I've been consistent in saying that the Democratic Party's anti-Russian hysteria is downright dangerous because the underlying implication of all this hysteria is that Donald Trump is working with the Kremlin at the behest of Vladimir Putin to execute pro-Russian policies in the United States. Now, if this were true, that would be treasonous. It would be hugely problematic. But the fact remains that we just don't have the evidence to validate all of their outrageous claims. And my opinion on this issue is dynamic. It's not static. I'm willing to change as the evidence becomes available. But as an American citizen, intelligence communities have not released this information for us to see. So I'm not even convinced that Russia did in fact hack into the DNC or John Podesta's emails, but if you can persuade me that that did happen, that doesn't erase the substance of what was found in those emails that showed how the DNC screwed over Bernie Sanders and his supporters. But nonetheless, even if you can prove the claims of Democrats right now, their behavior is still downright reckless. So all of this Russian hysteria began when the intelligence community claimed that Russians hacked into the emails of the DNC and John Podesta. Now, we haven't been able to see the evidence, but we're supposed to take them at their word. But the response to this alleged hacking of emails has been that it's tantamount to war, according to some Democrats. I'm not joking. And this wave of anti-Russian hysteria has quickly devolved into a new McCarthyism that's reminiscent of the Red Scare during the Cold War days. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, if Donald Trump and members of his cabinet met with the Russian ambassador, then investigated. I'm always going to come out on the side of more information and not less. However, I think that we can all probably conclude that it has something to do with oil, money, and corruption. Government officials do this all the time. In fact, we know that John Podesta's lobbying firm was actually hired by the biggest bank in Russia, so that way they could influence Hillary Clinton to end sanctions on Russia. But nobody's talking about that. However, out of the abundance of things that members of the Democratic Party establishment can actually attack Donald Trump for that would be legitimate, they're using this Russia debacle as the main attack on Donald Trump. Even the Washington Post said that he should denounce Vladimir Putin to prove that he's not a puppet. And if you've been watching Secular Talk, 
talk, Kyle Kalinske talks about how Rachel Maddow literally said that if Donald Trump withdraws troops from the Russian border, then that means that Donald Trump is proving to be a puppet. This is part of the way that President Obama is leaving office, by pushing up all these deployments and getting all those troops there. And Russia hates it. But apparently, if Donald Trump does things to de-escalate, that makes him a puppet of Putin. So this rhetoric is incredibly dangerous, and now they're literally demonizing Donald Trump for policies towards Russia that President Obama maintained. So The Intercept explains, the controversy began in July when the Washington Post reported that the Trump campaign worked behind the scenes last week to make sure the new Republican platform won't call for giving weapons to Ukraine to fight Russian and rebel forces. Ever since then, Democrats have used this language change as evidence that Trump and his key advisors have sinister connections to Russians and corruptly do their bidding at the expense of American interests. This attempt to equate Trump's opposition to arming Ukraine with some sort of treasonous allegiance to Putin masks a rather critical fact, namely that the refusal to arm Ukraine with lethal weapons was one of Barack Obama's most steadfastly held policies. The GOP ultimately joined with the hawkish wing of the Democratic Party to demand that Obama provide Ukraine with lethal weapons to fight Russia, but Obama steadfastly refused, as the New York Times reported in March of 2015, President Obama is coming under increasing pressure from both parties and more officials inside his own government to send arms to the country, but he remains unconvinced that they would help. When Obama kept refusing, leaders of the two parties threatened to enact legislation forcing Obama to arm Ukraine. This is why it's so notable that Democrats, in the name of resistance, have aligned with neocons, CIA operatives, and former Bush officials, not because coalitions should be avoided with the ideologically impure, but because it reveals much about the political and policy mindset they've adopted in the name of stopping Trump. They're attacking him on the grounds of insufficient nationalism, militarism, and aggression, equating a desire to avoid confrontation with Moscow as a form of treason, just like they did when they were the leading cold warriors. This is why they're finding such common cause with the nation's most bloodthirsty militarists, not because it's an alliance of convenience, but rather one of shared convictions. Indeed, long before Trump, neocons were planning a realignment with Democrats under a Clinton presidency. And the most ironic and overlooked aspect of this volatile spectacle is how much Democrats have to repudiate and demonize one of Obama's core foreign policy legacies while pretending that they're not doing that. Now, the reason why it's so important that we don't arm Ukrainian rebels is because we don't want the situation in Ukraine to devolve into a proxy war between the US and Russia. That would be devastating. We have to be very careful. We have to tread lightly because even though it's the case that Russia does not have the military capacity that we have, they still have nuclear weapons and we don't want to cause a fight with a nuclear power. Now, this whole debacle has been worrisome to me because Donald Trump is a madman. So as they try to push Donald Trump and egg on Donald Trump to be more tough, we're beginning to see that all of this anti-Russia rhetoric really is having a dangerous impact on Donald Trump. Now, we got the first indication of this when it was revealed that Trump told Vladimir Putin on his first phone call with him that he does not want to remain a signatory to the START Treaty, which was negotiated by President Obama and Vladimir Putin. So this treaty is important because it limits the nuclear stockpiles between both countries, but Trump basically told Putin to shove this deal up his ass on the call. 
That's devastating. Now, when it seemed like Trump would maintain the same stance towards Russia as Obama when it comes to arming the Ukrainians, he's now coming out on Twitter lambasting President Obama for how weak he was towards Russia, presumably to appease bloodthirsty neocons that want war with Russia. But that's not even the worst part. He recently selected a new NATO ambassador that's hell-bent on a proxy war with Russia. So The Intercept writes, President Trump has reportedly tapped as his ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a hawkish critic of Russia who wants the U.S. to arm Ukraine. It's the latest sign that the administration is reacting to criticism that it is too soft on Russia by pivoting to the other extreme. Richard Grenell is a former Bush-era U.S. spokesman at the United Nations who also served as a foreign policy spokesman for Romney's presidential campaign. Grenell said that Obama's belief that the U.S., could support Ukraine but not antagonize Russia represented a naive and dangerous worldview. In a Fox News op-ed, he proposed military escalation, offer advice and training to Ukraine, and sell it the lethal weapons required to contend with Russian armored personnel carriers, tanks, and missiles, he wrote, adding that the U.S. should also restart missile defense shield programs in Poland and the Czech Republic. Grenell also counseled Obama to leave direct military confrontation with Russia over Ukraine, quote, on the table. Again, NATO ambassador is someone who told Obama that he should not take military confrontation with Russia off the table. This is someone who is in favor of a new world war. He certainly wants a new Cold War, but he's indicated that he wants war with Russia. This is a direct result that the Democrats are having on Donald Trump. So they, they wanted him to be more tough. They wanted him to denounce Putin. They wanted him to do all this shit. And now they're seeing the dangerous impact that it's having, yet they're not stopping anytime soon. They are continuing to push Donald Trump on this stance. And it's getting to the point where I'm getting really worried. Donald Trump is unhinged. He makes hasty decisions. So, I mean, to all the Democrats who were pushing Donald Trump and egging him on, congratulations, you are now getting what you wish for. So Bernie Sanders has been a longtime advocate for closing tax loopholes for multinational corporations, and he has spoken out against corporate tax dodging. Now, finally, he introduced a bill that would end this horrible phenomenon once and for all. So he issued a press release which states, citing new evidence that many profitable corporations evade paying any U.S. income taxes, Senators Bernie Sanders and Brian Schatz Thursday introduced a bill to eliminate tax breaks that encourage corporations to shift jobs and profits offshore. Representative Jan Schakowsky introduced a companion bill in the House. In addition to closing loopholes, the Corporate Tax Dodging Prevention Act would tax the $2.4 trillion that American corporations currently hold offshore at the full corporate tax rate of 35%. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy released a report Thursday showing that 100 large profitable corporations paid zero or less in federal income taxes at least once in the last eight years. 18 corporations, including General Electric, International Paper, Priceline.com, and PGE, received tax refunds from the IRS on their combined profits from 2008 to 2015. The study also found that 48 corporations paid an effective tax rate of less than 10% over that period. On average, 
large profitable corporations in the United States paid an effective federal income tax rate of 21.2% over the eight-year period, slightly over half than the statutory 35% tax rate. Here's the simple truth. You can't be an American company only when it benefits you. You also have to be an American company when it comes to paying your fair share of taxes, Sanders said. Instead of giving a $550 billion tax break to corporate tax dodgers as President Trump has promised, our legislation will raise at least $1 trillion in new revenue over the next decade. The legislation would end the rule allowing American corporations to avoid paying U.S. taxes on profits they hold offshore. This would end the incentive for companies to stash profits in tax havens like Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. The bill would make several other reforms, including a ban on American corporations pretending to be foreign companies for tax purposes by inverting or using a post office box in an offshore tax haven as official headquarters. So this is long overdue, uh, and this is an issue that's not even controversial when you poll the American people, because by and large, they are behind Bernie Sanders on this issue, because of course, it's only fair that these multinational corporations pay the same tax rate as us. So I mean, before we even see our checks in uh, you know many instances about 30 to 40 percent of it is deducted in taxes meanwhile these assholes make billions in profits and get away with zero taxes I mean he, he said that they pay less than zero in some cases so they actually get a refund when they didn't pay anything so I mean when we get refunds it's because we paid too much they paid zero and they get refunds like, this only works if you game the system. Now, even though this is common sense policy and the American people are overwhelmingly in support of this type of legislation, well, the chances that it will get passed are near zero. Now, that's frustrating because you think, well, why is it that something so popular has no chance of passing? Well, it's because these multinational corporations that evade paying taxes, they also buy our politicians. So what they do is they contribute to the campaigns of Democrats and Republicans, and then they lobby them saying, look, all of these taxes that we're forced to deal with, you know, it's just too much and we're going to have to cut jobs or we're going to have to ship our jobs overseas to, you know, compensate somehow. So they basically buy politicians, they give them money, and then they ask them for policies that are favorable to their companies. And this is why this type of legislation will not be codified into law until we get money out of politics. Because unless we have a Congress that's not bought and paid for by these same corporate tax dodgers, we're never going to get this type of legislation passed. And it's frustrating because Congress, I mean, we live in a representative democratic republic, right? So we're supposed to have people in Congress represent our desire. So if it's our desire to end corporate tax dodging, why aren't they doing it? Well, because they don't really represent us. They represent the people who give them money. And your $10, well, that's not going to buy you access. So good luck. You can give them another $10 and they'll claim to appreciate that. But if you really want to get access to the politicians, you need to donate thousands of dollars to them. But obviously, we can't do that. Normal peasants like us can't do that. So they rely on these multinational corporations to basically finance the entirety of their elections. And then they get an office and they do the bidding of these tax dodgers. It's so frustrating, but at the same time, I think that these types of uh, legislations, I mean, introducing them, even though it's tantamount to just symbolism, it's still really important because the fact that a bill like this is sitting in Congress collecting dust, well, it shows that Congress doesn't represent the American people and they need to know that they have a bill that will do what they want. It will stop these multinational corporations and billionaires from dodging taxes, yet Congress doesn't want to pass it. Well, this should communicate to you the obvious. They don't represent you. They represent their donors.
Washington, D.C. is a complete and utter mess. It's totally chaotic. You don't really know what the hell is going on because you've got Democrats crying about Russia. You have uh, Trump crying about wiretapping. It, it's all just bullshit. It's a mess. But as the parties go toe-to-toe with each other, what's happening behind the scenes is really troubling. So I wanted to take a moment to step away from all of the sensationalism and step away from those distractions and talk about bills that are actually being proposed by Republicans that some of which have made their way through Congress that are very terrifying. So we already know that Republicans want to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency and terminate the Department of Education, but they're now attempting to funnel tax dollars towards private schools. Representative Steve King introduced this bill in January, which would redistribute funding earmarked for public schools in the form of vouchers for parents to send children to private schools. Over the long term, this would eventually bankrupt public schools and create a stratified education system in which cash-strapped public schools would be unable to meet the educational needs of low-income students. Now, these Republican thugs have also introduced rules to repeal various protections on wildlife. So, Representative Don Young, whose constituents likely include hunters who kill wildlife for sport rather than for food, introduced this joint resolution voicing displeasure with the Department of Interior rule that prohibits non-subsistence hunting in Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. The resolution passed the House and is awaiting action in the Senate. Now, on top of that, they're trying to implement Wisconsin-esque union-busting laws at the national level. So conservative ideologue Representative Steve King is aiming to cripple unions at the nationwide level with a bill that would systematically deprive labor unions of the funding they need to operate. It's important to note that right to work is bad for all workers, not just union members. In 2015, the Economic Policy Institute learned that wages in right-to-work states are roughly 3.2% lower than in non-right-to-work states. Now, besides abolishing the ACA, defunding sanctuary cities, and defunding Planned Parenthood, that's not even the tip of this batshit crazy iceberg. So, Representative Trent Franks wants to aggressively prosecute pregnant women seeking abortions, along with abortion providers, by making abortion a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. The bill is currently awaiting action in the Subcommittee on the Constitution and Civil Justice. Now, this obviously will have no chance of passing and it's unconstitutional but this guy is a crazy person trent franks you are a crazy person and how about this we'll agree to this bill we will actually criminalize abortion if you criminalize ejaculation because if abortion is murder then ejaculation is genocide so have you done that lately buddy because you've committed a lot of murders then these are the bills that i wish that the american media would talk about but unfortunately sensationalism is more profitable And we don't talk about what's going on behind the scenes, so we got to deal with these distractions. Meanwhile, Republicans are proposing things that are just outright insane. So I think it's important to talk about these bills, even though some of them don't have a chance of passing. But these are elected officials. Thousands of people voted for them. I mean, thousands of people voted for Trent Franks. And he's trying to criminalize abortion. If you're trying to do that, you're just a crazy person. You can be morally against abortion. But politically, if you're a representative of the U.S. government, you have to at least have a modicum of sanity when you legislate. But the fact that you want to criminalize abortion, it makes no sense to me how you could be in favor of this. And he doesn't specify, or this, the article certainly doesn't specify whether or not uh, there's an exception for uh, victims of rape or for women who are just too young to be pregnant or uh, abuse victims. We, we have no clue. But, you know, who knows? As Donald Trump makes a spectacle of himself and of 
of the Oval Office, you know, this type of shit is happening. So we have to be vigilant and we need to know what they're doing. Uh, and it starts with us paying attention and holding them accountable. So I think that President Obama, in terms of foreign policy, was leagues better than President Bush. With that being said, though, he was still completely awful because he did things that were unacceptable. He broke international laws. He implemented foreign policies that led to the slaughter of countless civilians. Now, with each successive presidency, each president should get better because you look to the past and learn from the mistakes of your predecessor. However, it's the case that Donald Trump is already repeating some of President Obama's biggest foreign policy mistakes. So, for example, when it comes to the drone war, President Obama immediately ramped up the drone war in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, but he scaled it back once he realized how many civilians were dying and just how little enemy combatants they were actually killing. So, with that being said, he scaled it back, although he still continued to drone illegally uh, in not just Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, but he increased it. Now we're droning in Libya and uh, Syria. So, I mean, we're at war with multiple countries. This is war, and that's illegal under international law. You can't violate their territorial integrity by droning them because we wouldn't want another country to drone us. But Obama was doing this and Trump is now doing the same thing because he immediately ramped up drone strikes. So according to the Council on Foreign Relations, by at least one measure at this point in his presidency, Trump has been more interventionist than Obama in authorizing drone strikes and special operations raids in non-battlefield settings, namely in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. During President Obama's two terms in office, he approved 542 such targeted strikes in 2,920 days, one every 5.4 days. From his inauguration through today, President Trump had approved at least 36 strikes or raids in 45 days, one every 1.25 days. These include three drone strikes in Yemen on January 20th, 21st, and 22nd, the January 28th Navy SEAL raid in Yemen, one reported strike in Pakistan on March 1st, and more than 30 strikes in Yemen on March 2nd and 3rd, and at least one more on March 6th. Thus, people who believe that Trump would be less interventionist than Obama are wrong, at least so far and at least when it comes to drone strikes. These dramatically increased lethal strikes demonstrate that U.S. leaders counter terror terrorism mindset and policies are bipartisan and transcend presidential administrations. So if you see that the last administration tried to ramp up drone strikes and it was a disaster, they killed more civilians than militants, why would you get in and repeat the same exact mistake immediately? It makes no sense. Now if you thought that that was enough, well, his State Department is repeating the same mistakes of President Obama's State Department under the tenure of Hillary Clinton. So the Independent explains the State Department has approved resuming arms sales to Saudi Arabia, previously blocked by Barack Obama. A multi-million dollar technology deal for Riyadh was blocked by the former president during the final months of his administration over human rights concerns. By approving the measure, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson may have given an indication the Trump administration will see closer ties with Saudi Arabia in the Yemen war. So much like Donald Trump, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is not learning from the mistakes of his predecessor. Now, Hillary Clinton approved a Saudi weapons deal once she received a contribution from them to the Clinton Foundation, and what we then learned was that they were committing war crimes in Yemen. Now, what Saudi Arabia claims is that they're only targeting Houthi rebels, but 10,000 civilians have been killed in the process, yet the U.S. continues to stand by our ally, Saudi Arabia, as they commit atrocities, and now by arming Saudi Arabia again, 
We are now complicit in the war crimes they're committing in Yemen. So the takeaway is that we are incapable of learning our lesson. We do something super horrible, it backfires, and not even a decade later, we're willing to do that same thing again and make the same exact mistakes. It, it's just beyond frustrating it's mind uh, boggling it's it's mind-numbingly stupid it just it doesn't make any sense to me and you know as democrats continue to fearmonger about russia and call out russian aggression nobody's willing to have, be a little bit introspective and look in the mirror and see what we're doing nobody's calling out our acts of aggression nobody's calling out the drone strikes that we're conducting in other countries illegally nobody's talking about the bad things that we're doing we only want to call out everyone else we're all hypocrites so this is so disgusting to me and to those of you who thought that he was non-interventionist my listeners all know i was trying to let you know he wasn't he was having private meetings with defense contractors like boeing and furthermore he's given us these little indications here and there that he will be hawkish i mean when you say that you want to kill the families of isis you want to literally execute civilians you're not non-interventionist you are the worst kind of war hawk so donald trump and his administration obviously they're militarists but it's frustrating that they're not just making mistakes that are obviously avoidable. They're making the same mistakes that we already made. It's not going to work, Trump. Learn the lesson that Obama learned. So I received the message from Humanist Report viewer Andrew Wyatt, and here's what he had to say. Hey, Mike, uh, this is Andrew. I love your show, by the way. And I was just wanting to see um, if you would be joining the Justice Democrats, what your involvement with them would be. And if you could just give us an update on that, I think that'd be really cool. Thank you so much for the message, Andrew. And of course, thank you so much for the kind words. It, it really means a lot to me that you guys think so highly of the show. So uh, to answer your question... Uh, I am not involved with the Justice Democrats in any official way, although I do support the Justice Democrats approach. And me personally, I kind of support a kitchen sink approach. I support Justice Democrats, but I simultaneously support the draft Bernie cause. I also support Wolfpack. But, you know, to answer your question overall, I am not part of Justice Democrats. I don't work for them, and I'm not technically affiliated with them, you know, in any way, even though I do promote the cause because I just believe in it. But, I mean, I have reached out to Kyle Kalinske, who is involved with Justice Justice Democrats, and he knows that I am behind him 100%. Uh, and, you know, I really I admire what he's doing because he is pouring his heart into this initiative. And, you know, for me, in the future, will I be involved with Justice Democrats or Wolfpack? I don't know. Uh, it's certainly, you know, it's something I would think about and consider, but I don't know that I can commit to that right now because, as I stated, Kyle Kalinske is pouring his heart and soul into this. And, you know, it's a lot. It takes a lot of time and energy and drive to do this right now. So, in the future, it's a possibility of me getting involved with one of these organizations or maybe starting my own. But, um, you know, as of right now, I don't think that I could commit to that. Uh, and I wouldn't want to get behind something or get involved with something like this unless I could really commit 100%. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate everything that the Justice Democrats are doing. I think that their strategy is sound. And I think that their early success is showing that they will be a great way to take over the Democratic Party. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to how the next couple of elections play out because I hope that they can actually make some way uh, and make some gains in the House and the Senate uh, and we get some Justice Democrats there. So yeah, thanks so much for the message. I think that's a great question because I do talk about Justice Democrats a lot. Um, I did, however, volunteer for Wolfpack um, for a very, very short amount of time before I started a podcast, just you know, when I was doing my graduate uh, program. But I mean, other than that, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved. I don't get paid from these organizations. I'm just, I'm a supporter because I believe in what they're doing. 
Well, that's our show. I want to thank you all for tuning in. If you made it this far in the episode, thank you so much. I want to send a huge shout out to all of our Patreon patrons, all of our members, all of the people who donate to us via PayPal. You guys help us not to just survive, but also to thrive and grow. So thank you all so much. Again, we are, pro- we are approaching uh, 100,000 subscribers. I'm going to have some good announcements pretty soon that you guys will all hopefully be excited about. Uh, I don't know when I can reveal them, but I, you know, I'm biting my tongue because I really want to talk about it. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I will see you all next week. Have a great day.